Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Locked in Science for another week. This is 30 Minutes of Science on your radio and although we locked in due to COVID-19 coronavirus, we are with you talking all sorts of science, not just, um, not just the coronavirus type, but the other burning questions that we might have on the show. My name is Claire and this week on the show I am going to let you in on one of the things that uh, Charles Darwin and I have in common actually, which is we both get seasick. Uh, Not that we can both grow a beard. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say it's not not the big bushy beard. I I thought that's... You're a dead ringer for Darwin on, you know, on the Zoom. It's the it's the lockdown beard. It's a lockdown beard. Everyone's got to have one. Um, they're they're all the rage. Yeah, it is that we both get seasick or motion sick. So, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about why, what motion sickness is, and how it affects our body, and what science can do to help us um, get through the motion sickness. Because, you know, car sickness, travel sickness, it's, it's going to become a thing again now that Victoria is opening up a little bit more and we can actually do some traveling. Um, <laughs> so, you know, maybe that's why I'm thinking about it. Stu, what do you have for us this week? Well, speaking of uh, seasickness and long voyages, um, I'm actually talking about water on the moon. (gasps) This is new research that's just come out. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, it's probably, it's about as long a journey as anyone's ever taken really to the moon. But, um, you know, there's, there's pretty good reasons why we don't tend to hang out on the moon very much. And one of the reasons is there's nothing to drink. Um, there's no bars, no, no, uh, se- no Seven Elevens where you can just pick up a bottle of water. So there's, it's been there's, an there's issue no, for years. There's no um, water fountains or bubblers, as they say in New South Wales. No, nah, no reticulated water whatsoever. But whether there's water or not on the moon has has been a, an issue for a number of years. But we've actually got some evidence that there may be a viable source of water on the moon as of, you know, this week, basically. And also I wanted to give a shout out as well to the New South Wales Scientist of the Year who I was reading about today. Um, And, you know, not all COVID science, as you said before, but this one is COVID related. It's one of the guys who was the uh, behind the um, release of the genetic sequence of the virus so oh fantastic a little bit about just talk a little bit about him and uh and what he actually did to win this award this week well we have some new research and some incredible scientists to thank for further developments in COVID-19 research great well can't wait to hear all about that on with the show
last year was the 50th anniversary of the first humans landing on the moon. And in just under two years, or just over two years, I should say, it'll be 50 years since the last humans landed on the moon. Oh, wow. We did not, we did not go to the moon for very long as a species. Um, and, you know, the space program was very much of its time. It was a Cold War space race between two superpowers. And there was a lot of scientific development as a result. Um, but some people might, you know, these days wonder, why did anyone go to the moon? Um, now, curiosity is the, the obvious reason. Um, it's, a, it's a basic human instinct, I think, to seek out new things and new places and it's part of the reason we've spread all over the globe and you know the curiosity that we eat all sorts of different things no matter where we end up in in the world um but you know going to the moon seems i guess like a logical step once people have gone everywhere they could think of on earth um you know we went to the moon but we really barely scratched the surface of the moon we literally you know the astronauts went up scooped up a few rocks brought them home, and that's pretty much the end of what happened. One of the reasons is that people can't stay on the moon for very long. It's not uh, a hospitable place. Um, there's a few things missing that make um, you know moon vacations possible. There's some great dancing on the moon, though. Well, there's, there's lots of walking on the there's moon, a... according to <laughs> that's right. the police. Exactly, walking um, on the moon, moonwalking, you know, there's some, some yeah. dance moves to be yeah. had. But there's also, you know, no kind of atmosphere. There's, there's, there is a very slight, thin atmosphere on the moon of basically dust and other gases and stuff that are attracted to the moon by gravity. Um, but there's no water, and that is a big drawback. So the expense of bringing all the air and water that you mm. need for an extended stay on the moon is huge. Every extra kilogram of payload on a on a spaceship costs thousands of dollars to get up to the moon, basically. Um, so without the air and water, people can only stick around for a few hours. And the first Apollo mission lasted 21 hours on the surface of the moon. Only two hours they were outside. Wow. They, yeah, okay. they, left, they left the landing module for two hours, tops, and wandered around, did some stuff, got back in the thing, and then sat there and had a bit of a snooze and then took off again. But the, the, the mission itself was very, very short. So that was, and that was the limit of how long they could stay. If they, did, if they stayed any longer, they would have run out of air and, and all the other things they needed. But if there was a water supply on the moon, it would allow two things. So firstly, the water for the astronauts to drink, um, but also a potential supply of hydrogen fuel and oxygen for breathing because water is made of hydrogen and oxygen. So they would have an air supply and a potential hydrogen source to actually make fuel. So they wouldn't have to take all the fuel they needed if there was some water there on the moon. So this week, scientists working with NASA's Flying Observatory. Do you know NASA's Flying Observatory, Sophia? Uh, no, I don't think I'm familiar with Sophia, the Flying Observatory. Yeah, I, I wonder, you know, it, the, the name Sophia stands for Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. Um, 
And these scientists confirmed that there is water on the moon, but they didn't have to go there to find out because uh-huh. Sophia is a modified Boeing 747. Right. That can pick can pick up radiation that can't be detected from the ground because the Earth's atmosphere blocks out a lot of the various wavelengths of radiation that, that we would be otherwise able to see. So Sophia Observatory flies around almost 14 kilometres above the Earth for 10-hour stretches overnight to look at radiation from mm. ca- coming from coming from space, from all kinds of different stuff in space. Um, they can look at complex molecules and the radiation that gas clouds are giving off and that sort of stuff. Um, they look at um, solar systems forming. They look at nebulas. They look at black holes. They look at all sorts of stuff flying around in this massive Boeing 747 called Sophia. Um, so using this mobile flying observatory, they confirmed there definitely is water on the moon and it is in a form that could be extracted. But it's going to be tricky because most of it is trapped in rocks on the moon. Oh, okay. It's not like you can just hold your water bottle underneath a flowing stream. <laughs> no, there's there's no there's no lunar waterfalls or anything like that. So don't go chasing waterfalls if you ever get to the moon. <laughs> um, you're going to have to get down into these massive craters on uh, the polar regions of the moon, which never get hit by the sun. And the temperature doesn't get above about minus 230 degrees Celsius. So it's a very, very inhospitable location, even more so than than other parts of the moon. And you're going to have to do a lot of work. So it will be a lot of work for anyone to actually get a glass of water. But it still may be less trouble than bringing their own from home when it comes down to it. So, Stu, like I said in the introduction, Charles Darwin and I, we have we share a special something. I mean, we, we do both love animals um, or did, but we also both get or got seasick. Now, I, I, don't know if lo- I don't know if everyone's aware of that, but, I mean, Darwin travelled around the world, literally <laughs> around the world on a ship called the Beagle. How would you, how would you cope with the seasickness? I mean... The high I, seas too, not just not just skirting the coastline. Right. I mean, his time on the Beagle was uh, very historic for so many reasons. Um, you know, I I guess I would, if I had to pick, I would choose being someone who gets seasick in my time rather than someone who gets seasick in Darwin's time. Yeah. But I do have a great quote from him um, about seasickness, which goes, the misery I endured from seasickness is far, far beyond what I ever guessed at. <laughs> oh, God. It really sounds awful. And I guess people might experience it differently. Some people might get slightly seasick and, 
Others yeah. get violently seasick. That's right. That's right. And you know, I mean, I get I get motion sickness a lot, and it's happened ever since I was pretty young. Doesn't matter if I'm in a winding car, if I'm on a boat, if I'm in an aeroplane, um, even even that you know virtual reality will leave me feeling really dizzy and like I want to throw up. Which is, even if you're not actually moving, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh um, wow. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's it's something I've had to deal with. Um, but I do feel it has gotten more intense as I've gotten older. So um, uh, now that you know Victoria's opening up and we're all going to be travelling a little bit more, I'm getting excited about that. You know, want to do a bit of investigation into the science of seasickness and how to get past it. I've never really had motion sickness. I have been able to travel quite sickness free for all of my life so i've sort of you know i've wondered what caused it too because some people just you know can't handle the motion of especially on boats and things like that but you know even on trains and cars i know and, yeah it's never, yeah. never been a yeah. problem for me I, I can read i can play donkey kong oh, i can do anything God. in the car oh, i envy you so much so in general, scientists think motion sickness, so the dizziness, the headaches, the nausea, um, it comes about through the confusion between the senses. So to keep our balance while navigating the world, we use our eyes, ears, um, and then, you know, our feet, maybe our hands if if you're a baby and you're crawling along, that's what you need to, to balance. Um, and this is all, all called our vestibular system. And if you don't think you use your eyes to balance, just try standing on one foot and closing your eyes and see how much harder it is to do that because it is a lot harder. Um, now, the inner ear is the seat of the vestibular system and it deals with movement and balance. So if your eyes are telling you one thing, like, for example, I am sitting in a car um, and your ears are telling you something else, which is, oh my goodness, I'm, you know, careening down the highway at 110 kilometers an hour. Um, That mismatch of sensory information can cause a problem. And that problem um, can obviously get very messy. Um, Now, it's all good knowing about what's going on, but how do we counteract it? How do I get... How am I going to be able to get on a boat, even though, you know, the, I mean, even the thought of it is just making me a little bit sick right now. Now, according to science, the best defense is offense, um, and that is to tackle your seasickness head on and make sure you get your sea, your sea legs as soon as you can, or in other words, adapt to the motion of the boat. Now, that, now there are two different ways of thinking about this. There's a bit of a debate on how you can do it. According to the first school of thought, it's about your brain learning how to predict body movement in a new environment. And um, other people argue that it's all about your keeping in an upright position. But firstly, with your, um, you know, your brain learning how to predict body movement in a new environment, it, it is quite an art to stay on two legs. And as you start to lose balance, your eyes, your inner ears and other parts of your sensory system Alert your brain, which then tells your muscles and your joints and your muscles and your joints to take action to keep you upright. Um, but there's a limit to how fast our nerves can carry information uh, to and from the brain. So our brains have to learn to predict how our movement affects our balance. 
Um, now, our brains learn this predictive power when we're toddlers. So um, this always happens, you know, we have, we, we learn how to predict what our, um, what's going on when we're on solid ground, not when we're on ground that's moving around and to and fro and back and forth and all that sort of stuff that you get when you're on a boat. Because, you know, I mean, when you're on a boat, you move in a very complicated way. You don't just move forward and backwards. Um, their boats pitch and roll and then they also your sway and surge and um, appropriately they heave. So, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different boating movements. And there's, you know, I guess that, that just shows how long we've been boating. We <laughs> probably know all of those words, but they're, you know, embedded in the language really, aren't they? Oh, that, we, we've been boating for a really long time. People have been finding their sea legs a really, really long time, but um, maybe, you know, more seafaring people like you, Stu, um, tend to stay on the on the ocean for longer than people like me. Um, now, every every trip on a boat that you do is going to be different, depending on the sea, the weather conditions, and the type of the ve- type of vessel. Um, uh, and until your brain adapts and learns the rhythm of a particular journey, um, you your predictive system and how how you sort of like relearn that. Um, it's going to be based on what you learnt on land. So your brain's expectations are going to um, conflict with what your senses tell you. But once your brain adapts to the movement of the boat, the predictions um, will be more realistic and the messages your body gets will be in sync with your senses. So um, therefore, that sort of like in sync new way of doing things means that you reclaim your balance and um, that's what they suggest getting your sea legs is about. So this explains why passengers, not drivers, tend to get car sick. Um, I'm sure there might be a few listeners out there who might be in that position. Um, if it's a really bendy road, um, really windy, I always end up driving because that way I don't get too car sick. Um, now, because the driver's in control of the car and knows, for example, you know, how tight to take the corners um, and so the information going into their brain uh, is is better able to accurately predict the movement that's happening to you. Um, the passenger, on the other hand, is at the mercy of the driver and so is less, predictive, is less able to predict what is going on and they're more likely to get car sick. Um, one way to get around this maybe is to um, just shadow what the driver's doing and pretend almost like you're driving and that almost tricks your system into, um, into you know, finding your, your um, car legs as they, as they are. So the other researchers suggest that the main culprit that causes seasickness um, is all to do with how we sway. <laughs> so in the same people, in the same way people differ in their ability to learn tennis and ice skating or water skiing, um, they differ in their ability to learn to adapt to a moving ship. And overcoming seasickness involves a sort of like an unconscious experimentation with different muscles or joint movements um, to 
try to keep you as stable as possible and help you keep your balance. So in other words, keeping your muscles engaged and upright will give you your sea legs. Um, But there are some tricks to help you out here. So the first, which you've probably heard, Stu, is uh, keep your eye on the horizon. And they've done studies on this. And it's a scientific fact. It works. If you look at the horizon on a ship, then this physically stabilizes your body. That's all very well, unless you're in a cabin below decks or something like that. That doesn't help at all then. That's so true. That is (laughs) so true. You need to get up um, as far up as possible and out. I mean, I I always find that having... um, fresh air on my face helps as well or staying to the to the closest closest to the center of the boat so then you're not having the sort of like extremes of movement that happen at each sort of end of the boat all of those um yawing and toing and froing and all that that sort of stuff Oh, I sort of get sick just thinking about it. The other tip is to stand with your legs further apart. Um, so you try these things and apparently most people will get their sea legs within about 36 hours of leaving shore. Now I know that um, 36 hours doesn't sound like much if you're on solid ground, but 36 hours of seasickness is probably the equivalent of like 10 years in real time. It's just... <laughs> It's like, oh, yeah, you'll you'll get your sea legs in 36 hours. Oh, that's a lifetime. Come on, people. Interestingly, women are more prone to seasickness than men, which may be um, due to different body shapes and weight distribution um, that causes us to sway differently. Uh, So if you think uh, typically weight tends to be carried in women's hips and in men, weight's carried in the chest. So this translates to a mechanical difference. So if you think of two people swaying, um, what you see is women tend to, to sway slowly, but they move sort of like farther to each side. But men tend to sway faster, but they do so in a, in a smaller area, <laughs> which apparently makes a big difference. Um, so there you go. Um, Overall, the best way to get your sea legs is by keeping um, to keep standing up and to keep trying to balance any way you can. Um, and this is going to challenge your brain's predictive system and hopefully reprogram yourself as fast as possible so you don't have to go through um, any more hours of hell than you need to. I know you love an award, Claire. It is the award season. <laughs> um, a very, very topical award given out just this week is the New South Wales Award for Scientist of the Year. Woohoo! Um, and it's for some pretty impressive work by a genetic detective called Holmes. Hang on, what? Um, 
<laughs> is, that his, is, so, it, is that his name? Yeah. Oh, Professor that's... Edward Holmes okay. was working was working with a colleague in China, Professor Yong Zhen Zhang, who had sequenced the genetic code of the virus that caused, causes COVID-19. And he shared it with Professor Holmes, who deciphered the sequence to reveal new information about the virus way back in January of this year when nobody else had that data. And he was he was interpreting the sequence and um, pulling out information from it that allowed them to pinpoint exactly what the virus was and what it did. So uh, Zhang shared it with Professor Holmes and... Uh, they decided to publish the sequence to the internet, even though they'd been asked not to by university officials in China. Um, so what, what was the reason that university officials in China were saying that they shouldn't publish it to the internet? Well, that they, wanted, they wanted to publish a paper and actually get it out there that way, which is, which is kind of the standard way that you would get this sort of information out. But um, yeah, so It seems like it's very, Zhang, very special time um, to be getting that sort of uh, really important information out to as many scientists and researchers as possible though, right? Well, that's right. They, they just took it on themselves and said, look, we'll just, we're just going to put it out there. Um, that allowed scientists all over the world to start developing tests. So they didn't even really have decent tests before anyone had access to this data. So every day that it was delayed was really slowing down the testing, yeah. let alone development of the huge number of vaccines that are under development at the moment and people are researching mm. that um and professor holmes has apparently been working non-stop as in every day since then without a break um but the new south wales government have awarded him sixty thousand uh, dollars and honored him with being scientist of the year for for his work on the oh. uh, on the dna amazing yeah, so I hope he I hope he gets <laughs> gets some time off to enjoy the money. Uh, but I just wanted to say congratulations to Professor Holmes and Professor Zhang, and let's hope Professor Zhang also gets a prize for his work, and not a surprise. have time for on another episode of Locked in Science. Locked in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com 
You can find us on Twitter, we are Lost in Science 1, or find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week when Stu, Chris and Claire get locked in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.